Well, this is Tim Stratton, and today I just want to talk a little bit about evil. Um, this is going to be my evil talk. <laughs> All right, sorry, that was cheesy. But I want to talk about evil, and specifically, God and evil. Why would God allow evil? You know, uh, I don't know it's been two or three years ago now. Uh, I was eating at my favorite burrito joint, and I was there with a friend of mine named Brian and a few others, and we were there for, for a good hour or so, and right as I was getting up and I was throwing my stuff away, getting ready to leave, a friend of Brian's came in named Carl, and Brian was like, hey, Tim, you got to meet Carl, and Brian introduced us, and he said, uh, he, he told Carl, he's like, hey, Tim here, he, he's a pastor, and Tim... Carl over here, he's an atheist. You guys should talk. And I'm like, oh, really? And so I sat back down, figured I was going to be there for a while. I think I was there for another three hours talking with Carl about his, uh, his worldview of atheism. And, you know, I, I offered the, you know, some of the arguments I like to, uh, to go through, the Kalam cosmological argument, the, the moral argument for God's existence, the ontological argument, the fine-tuning argument. Um, one of the arguments that I work on called the free-thinking argument against naturalism that shows that at least naturalism is false. There are things like souls that exist. And if souls exist, it makes sense that God exists, things like that. So I started giving him all these reasons for why his worldview of atheistic naturalism was probably false. But then I asked Carl, I said, Carl, so why are you an atheist? And it didn't take him long to answer this question. Carl said, I'm an atheist because of all the evil and suffering in the world today. Hmm. Well, here, Carl, the atheist, appealed to all the evidence, or I'm sorry, all the evil in the world, and, but I, I didn't let him do that. You see, I told him, I remember saying this, I said, well, Carl, evil is not your evidence. It's mine. Evil is my evidence for God's existence. He said, how in the world can you use evil to demonstrate that God exists? And so I had mentioned to him earlier about the moral argument. You know, and really quickly it goes like this. Premise one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Uh, the next premise, uh, premise two, says objective moral values and duties do exist. And then it follows, the conclusion is, therefore, God exists. And I went back to that argument. And I said, well, let me change this up a little bit uh, to clarify this for you. And so the, the first step of the argument stayed the same. Premise one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two, I said evil exists. You already said it exists, Carl. You already offered it as evidence. Um, that leads to the next step. Uh, step three is, therefore, objective moral values and duties do exist because some things are really evil. And then it follows conclusion four, or step four, therefore, God exists. So let's look at it again. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Two, evil exists. Three, therefore, objective moral values and duties exist because some things are really evil. And four, therefore, God exists. 
So right off the bat, I turned this atheist's worldview upside down and took his reasons for atheism away from him and used what he was affirming, evil, to prove the existence of God. Now, this young man, he was in his early 20s at the time, he basically spent the next two weeks with me or so. Well, you know, check that. Uh, nine days later, Carl gave his life to Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, he hasn't looked back. But the question still remains. Even though evil is an evidence against God, in fact, evil proves God exists, the question still remains, why would God allow evil and suffering? Why would God, an omniscient, omnibenevolent, and omnipotent God, create a world suffused with vast amounts of pain, evil, and suffering? You know, the, the skeptic or the atheist would, would offer an argument like this and say, uh, step one or premise one, if God is omnibenevolent, he would want to prevent evil from entering the world. Two, if God is omnipotent, he would have the power to prevent evil from entering the world. Three, if God is omniscient, he would know how to prevent evil from entering the world. Four, evil is in the world. Five, therefore, God is not one of these omnis, right? He doesn't possess one of these omni attributes. Now, the non-Christian typically exclaims that if God, or the supernatural creator of the universe, <laughs> is not all of the omnis, then even if there is a powerful supernatural creator of the universe, he is not maximally great, and therefore he is not God, because he is not worthy of worship. So, although naturalism would still be false on this view, atheism would still be true, because atheism is the view that a being worthy of worship does not exist. Well, now they're right about that. If one of God's omni-attributes is subtracted or deleted from him, then he is not a maximally great being, and therefore he's just a powerful being, but he's not worthy of worship. So they're right about that, but their argument is not sound because there seems to be a missing premise in regards uh, to step one of their argument. Now, to make sense of it, let's look at another argument that's similar, and I call it the dentist argument. It goes like this. Step one, if parents are good, they would never want their kids to experience pain at the dentist. Two, if parents have any power, they could prevent their kids from going to the dentist. Three, if parents are smart or intelligent, they would know how to take their kids or how to not take their kids to the dentist. Four, their kids are getting their cavities filled at the dentist and they are in pain at the, in the dentist chair. Five, therefore, these are bad parents. <laughs> these parents are bad. That's the conclusion. Now, it's obvious that there is something wrong with this argument, right? Well, what is it? I mean, if you're a parent listening to this, you know that although you hate to see your child in pain, sometimes experiencing pain is the best thing for your child. In this instance, 
temporary pain at the dentist will save them from worse pain in the future. On top of that, their kids will grow up with a healthy mouth and a beautiful smile. So in the long run, we know that it's actually good for kids to experience some pain in the dentist chair. So what about the argument against God we looked at? I mean, just like the parents allowed their kids to experience pain at the dentist because it will ultimately lead to good, can the same be said about God allowing us to experience all of this pain, evil, and suffering? Well, you better believe it. Consider this. Jesus made it clear that the objective purpose of our lives was to love God, love ourselves, and love others as much as, as, much as ourselves, right? I mean, open your Bibles up to Matthew 22, 36 through 40, and, and read that. Let it, let it sink in. I mean, uh, Jesus himself is giving the greatest two commandments. And he says the number one reason, the number one uh, command that you're called to do is to love God with every aspect of your existence and then to love your neighbor as yourself, really, really to love all people as yourself. Now, if you think about it, uh, that means that you should love yourself. Now, you shouldn't love yourself more than God and you shouldn't love yourself more than other people. All right, that'd be selfish. But you need to realize that you were created in the image of God, that you are of high value, that God values you, and therefore you ought to value yourself. You ought to love yourself, okay? But then you should love everybody else just as much as you love you. <laughs> I mean, let that sink in. I mean, Christianity is all about love. Now, you can't do that properly unless you keep the first commandment, which is to love God more than you love yourself and everybody else. Love God first. If you do that, you can keep the second commandment. And if you do that, if you keep those two commandments, then everything else is going to fall into place. But if you think about the first commandment there, the greatest commandment, to love God with every aspect of your existence. I mean, if you think about it, then that's the very reason that you exist. That's why God created you. The primary reason God created you, the greatest commandment, is to love God. You were created to be in a true love marriage, so to speak, with the creator of the universe, with your creator. In fact, those of you that know and, and love God will, will tell you that this love relationship is the best a human could ever experience. And it gets better every day, doesn't it? I mean, just think, it, you get to experience this love relationship into the infinite future, into eternity. So the very reason and the objective purpose that we were created is to know, love, and enjoy God. And to do anything else is to objectively waste your life. Right? If you ultimately don't live up to the reason why you were created, to know, love, and enjoy God, then you are objectively wasting your life. And sadly, most people in the world waste not just their lives on earth, but waste their eternal lives. Well, maybe you're thinking right now, well, Tim, I thought you were going to be talking about evil. 
and now you're talking about love. I thought I thought the topic of, of this talk was evil. What's what's going on? All right, let me start to connect some dots here for you. Now that we understand that the objective reason you exist is to be in a love relationship with your creator. Well, let's let's talk about our creator and his uh his attribute of omnipotence, okay? The omnipotence of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Can God do all things? Think about that. Can God do all things? Is that what omnipotence means? Now, let me tell you, I do affirm and I do believe that God is all-powerful. However, I must add that I do not believe God can do all things. Now, before I'm accused of being self-contradictory at best or a heretic at worst, uh, consider this. Can God make a triangle with four corners? Can God make and create a married bachelor? Can God create a rock that's so big that even he can't lift it? Can God sin? Can God commit suicide and stop existing? Even if he wanted to. Can God create something that is not contingent upon him for its existence? Can God create something that something else that ought to be worshipped? Can God create something that we should worship? Now, the answer to all of the above is a resounding no. Consider the married bachelor, for example. Why can't God create a married bachelor? Well, the answer is this. Because if a man is married, he is no longer a bachelor. If a man is a bachelor, he is not married. Therefore, it's impossible for a married bachelor to exist. It's even impossible for God to create a married bachelor because God cannot do the logically impossible. Thank God that he can't. <laughs> I mean, when we say that God is omnipotent, this means that God can do all things which are logically possible. And this includes some things which are scientifically impossible, but not logically impossible. You see, I believe that the logic itself is grounded in God's nature, right? Just like omnipotence, right? Or, or the other omni attributes, I believe logic itself is grounded in God's nature, right? And so when we start with logic, we're actually starting with God if we realize it or not. In fact, uh, in the Gospel of John, John goes as far as to call Jesus, as to call the second person of the Trinity, the Logos. What does that mean? John is actually calling Jesus the logic, you see, um, so I, I think that's pretty interesting to see, uh, you know, in the original Greek, logos means the principle of reason. And that's where, where we get the term logic today. But John goes as far as to call Jesus the logic. I think that's pretty interesting. But like I said, when we say that God is omnipotent, this means that God can do all things which are logically possible. And this includes some things which are scientifically impossible, but not logically impossible. You see, there's a difference. Like creating a universe from nothing is scientifically impossible, but 
It's not logically impossible. Raising Jesus from the dead is scientifically impossible, but it is not logically impossible. So God can do scientifically impossible things, but he cannot do things that are logically impossible. There's a big difference. You see, science depends on logic, but logic does not depend on science. All right, now, since we've established the impossibility of God being able to do the logically impossible, let's get back to the challenge. Can God create any world he wants since we believe he is all-powerful? Well, the, the answer to that is no as well, if you consider two things, true love and free will. True love and free will. Now, If God desired to make a world where the people in that world could experience a real and loving relationship with their creator, they must possess free will. Genuine free will, what I call libertarian free will. If a person does not freely choose to enter into a loving relationship with another person, well, it's not true love. It's just not true love. Think about it. If a woman is forced to marry a man she did not want to marry, well, they might be legally married by some corrupt judge, but true love is not a part of that relationship. True love can only occur if it is free from external coercion or force. True love is only possible between two persons who both freely choose to enter into that loving relationship together. And moreover, it's logically impossible for someone to make someone else do something freely. I've heard Dr. William Lane Craig say that before. It's logically impossible for someone to make someone else do something freely. You see, that's on the same logically fallacious level as square circles and married bachelors. It's logically impossible for those things to exist. In fact, as Dr. Craig says, those things are nothing more than a logically inconsistent combination of words. <coughs> Excuse me. If God desired to create a world in which human beings had free will so that they could freely choose to enter into a true love relationship with him, then, all right, given this free will, if we really had free will, then we could also freely choose to turn our backs on God and sin, right? If we can freely choose to love God, then we can freely choose to hate him and reject him and do horrible, evil, sinful things. So if true love is going to occur, God's got to give us free will. But if free will is really free, well, then things like the Holocaust can happen. Things like ISIS can occur. You see, for For a true loving relationship with God to be possible, it seems to require the potentiality that this loving relationship could be freely rejected by humanity. And this is the ultimate sin. In fact, I believe this continual rejection of the Holy Spirit's advances in a person's life is the only unforgivable sin, which is spoken of in Matthew 12, 31 and 32, and Mark 3, verse 30. This is known as what? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I, That's the only unforgivable sin, according to the Bible. 
And I believe this is the continual rejection of the Holy Spirit's advances in a person's life. Now, the Bible is clear that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We see this in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. God wants all people to freely choose to enter into a true love relationship with Him for all eternity. But you see, God won't force anyone into that relationship. If God forced people into that relationship against their will, then it would not be true love. You know, many hold to a view that we are incapable of rejecting God's grace if He chooses to avail Himself to us as individuals. However, if we are incapable of resisting the call of God, this seems to be equal to kidnapping. This is definitely not true love. In fact, this is startlingly, startlingly similar to a phenomenon known as Stockholm Syndrome, which has been documented as occurring to some kidnapping victims after they've been held captive for a period of time. In many instances, the, the victim who was kidnapped begins to have feelings for their captors. In fact, sometimes they say that they're in love with the very criminal that kidnapped them. In fact, they'll wait for them to get out of prison so that they can marry them because they say they're in love with their kidnappers. Now, this is obviously not true love, but it's psychological trauma. Um, it, it seems to me that if humanity is incapable of resisting God's invitation to enter into a relationship with Him, the best relationship we could hope to have with God is Stockholm Syndrome, which is the farthest thing from true love. Thus, it's very possible for humanity to freely choose to reject the Holy Spirit's advances in our lives and to do this continually. And this is the only unforgivable sin. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I talk a lot about this, uh, about um, being able to resist uh, the, the grace of God and to resist the Holy Spirit's advances. And uh, I demonstrated this in what I call the omni-argument uh, against Calvinism. Or in this case, I'm going to call it the omni-argument against irresistible grace. And the reason I say Calvinism is because Calvinism holds to this acronym called TULIP, and the I in TULIP stands for irresistible grace. So my argument goes like this. Premise one, if the doctrine of irresistible grace is true, whomever receives this grace will go to heaven and not suffer eternal hell. Premise two, if God is omnibenevolent, he would not want anyone to suffer eternal hell. All right, we can back this up with 1 Timothy 2, 4. God desires all men to be saved. Three, if God is omnipotent, he could provide irresistible grace to all people. Four, if God is omniscient, he would know how to provide irresistible grace to all people. Five, some people suffer eternal hell. Six, conclusion. Therefore, Either God is not omnibenevolent, or not omnipotent, or not omniscient. Feel free to pick at least one, or the doctrine of irresistible grace is not true. All right, now, unlike the dentist argument that we looked at earlier, this argument seems valid 
as there is no future benefit to the person experiencing hell, uh, especially for choices they were powerless to make. So unless you're a universalist, that is, I have some friends and even some uh, close uh, relatives that think universalism is true and look at hell as kind of a purgatory, right? <laughs> kind of like that dentist chair. But I disagree with universalism, and I could do a, a talk on that in the future. So if you think that some people do experience eternal hell, then this doctrine of irresistible grace and ultimately Calvinism seems to fail. So as I said, when it comes to the five points of TULIP, if you're familiar with that acronym, I actually can aff affirm four of the five points, but I think the I is both unbiblical and illogical. In fact, if you want to, you can call me a four-point Calvinist. Um, I know some Calvinists that call themselves three-point Calvinists. So in, in, in some ways, I'm more Calvinistic than some Calvinists. I don't like to call myself a Calvinist. I prefer the term Molinist. But if I had to, I could call myself a four-point middle-knowledge Calvinist. Now, let's get back to uh, free will. And, and love and what this all has to do um, in regards to evil. You see, when we sin, we freely choose to act in opposition to God's essential nature and character. And when we freely choose to rebel against God, well, we choose to bring more pain and suffering into this world. For true love to be possible with our Creator, we must be able to freely choose to enter into that relation, relationship, that love relationship, that marriage relationship with God. So, therefore, we can see that if God truly is all-loving, He must create a world in which persons have free will. And if free will is really free and not some word game, then this world will have the possibility, not just of of love and pleasure and happiness, but also the real possibility of pain, evil, and suffering. <coughs> Excuse me, dealing with a cold here. With this logic, we can prove that indeed it is possible for God to exist and to be all-powerful and for suffering to occur in this world at the same time. Therefore, when the, when the atheist exclaims, it's impossible for God and evil to both exist, well, that objection is clearly false, and it should not be believed. Now, we've also examined uh, God's goals in creation, which, which include having an authentic, loving relationship with every human. And to demonstrate also, I mean, we haven't really looked at this, but as characters of mercy and justice and grace and moral goodness, to us as well. But given these goals, you see, God has limited himself and given man true libertarian free will. He's given man genuine freedom, which man has then used to freely reject God and to sin. Thus, evil entered into the world by man's actions. And God, you see, is innocent of causally determining or forcing any human to sin. We're responsible for that. We are responsible for sin, not God. You see, sin 
is a result of our own free and very real decisions. We are responsible for sin and evil, not God. So it's very logical to believe that an all-powerful, all-loving, and perfectly good God exists. And since he is all good, he's also all-loving. Since he is all-loving, well then, he wants an authentic, loving relationship with each and every human being that he has ever created. Uh, Since God desires an authentic love relationship with each individual human being, he had to give us the free will to choose to love him or turn our backs on him. And you see, when we turn our backs on God, we sin. And these transgressions have infected this world with evil and pain and terrible suffering. Now, God allows us to experience this suffering because, well, suffering can shape us as well as bring us closer to God, which is the greatest good a human could ever experience. Well, with this in mind, you see, the only way God could eradicate moral evil in the world is if he eradicated free will. But you see, that would then eradicate the possibility of each one of us freely choosing to enter into a true love relationship with our Creator. And that love relationship with our Creator is the greatest good a person could ever experience. Therefore, eradicating evil would be evil. You see, love is good. In fact, if we didn't have free will, not only could we not love God, we couldn't even really freely love each other. And if love is good, then we've got to have free will. And if free will is really free, then we can freely choose to do evil. So if God is going to eradicate evil, he would have to eradicate free will, which would eradicate love. And eradicating love would be evil, since love is the ultimate good. (laughs) You see, eradicating evil would be evil. So it follows that it is good that evil, pain, and suffering were made possible and allowed by God. Now, some atheists and non-believers respond and, and say that I have only answered the problem of moral evil in the world. But what about all of the natural evil in the world that causes suffering like tsunamis or tornadoes or wildfires? Well, I've been thinking about this and Well, here's something to think about. C.S. Lewis uh, offered a famous quote. He said, The gates of hell are locked from the inside. Well, if that's true, then could it also be said that the gates of heaven are locked from the inside? That is to say, is it logically possible for a person in heaven to freely choose to to sin and blaspheme the Holy Spirit and leave the presence of the Lord and choose to go to hell. Well, this is just speculation here, but I answer, well, maybe it's logically possible, but why would they want to? Why would they want to? I mean, that would be a very important question to ask. You see, those in heaven would have experienced the imperfection of this world with all of its evil, pain, and suffering. Moreover, they would be in 
an epistemic position to know that hell was even worse in the absence of God and all that is good. That hell was worse than this world that we all live in right now. I mean, this world is full of suffering and evil and pain, right? But now they're in heaven. And why would they choose to leave heaven to go to a world that was far worse than the one that they just came from? I mean, think about it. Those in heaven would be experiencing a personal relationship with the maximally great being who lavishes them with perfect love and meets every single need with perfection. So tell me, why would a saint in heaven freely choose to leave this ultimate paradise and perfect love for the imperfection and horror of hell? You see, They would have the knowledge of good and evil, to steal from Genesis, right? They would have the knowledge of good and evil, and they would have experienced maximal greatness in heaven. So it doesn't seem like anyone who has experienced the imperfection and evil and suffering of this world and the maximal perfection of the next world in heaven, it doesn't seem that anyone would freely choose to leave heaven to exist in a world that was far worse than the imperfection and suffering of the world they just left, (laughs) than this world. I don't know, but perhaps this is how God can guarantee that free creatures will persevere into the infinite future. At any rate, those that have experienced finite suffering and imperfection should really appreciate infinite maximal perfection. You know, I think about Bible verses uh, such as 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, where Paul actually says that this light momentary affliction prepares us for eternity. It's just a thought, just a thought. I know that there's some other models I I like also. There's some models that would say that we don't have free will into the infinite future, but that we had to freely choose to lose our free will in heaven. Um, But I kind of like this thing that I'm thinking through here, because if, uh, if, if true love requires free will, then this is a way that God can guarantee the perseverance of the saints. That's the P in TULIP, Um, the perseverance of the saints without violating our free will. I'm just thinking about it. Anyway, you see, Christianity has a very logical answer to the atheist's intellectual problem of evil. But usually their problem is not really an intellectual one, as they may posture. But in reality, they have a a moral revulsion to their misconstrued idea of who God is. And that really boils down to bad theology. So whose fault is that? I mean, we as pastors and, and Christians and In general, I mean, we need to understand theology because bad theology leads to bad teaching and bad teaching leads to rejection of God. I mean, I'm not going to say this uh, forces this, but we have some responsibility. We influence others' decisions. We don't force them against their will. They're still responsible. But you see, we can influence others' bad decisions. That's why I think Scripture teaches that that teachers of God's word are are held to a higher standard. That kind of scares me. Um, And so I'm I'm devoted to 
really try to understand the truth and to do the best I can um, to understand God's Word and to understand good theology and to teach it. So, you know, so, so often, excuse me, the atheist or the non-believer, you know, their problem uh, with uh, evil and suffering, it's an emotional problem rather than an intellectual one. But this emotional problem of evil and suffering is still a very real problem. So how do we as Christians respond to the emotional problem? And why have I spent so much time answering the intellectual side of the problem of evil and suffering? Well, if the real problem non-believers and some Christians have with God is an emotional problem, then what do we do with this? You see, there's two answers to this question. Number one, since people think their problem with suffering is an intellectual one, well, now we as Christians can now gently and lovingly guide them through this thought process. Moreover, by having this conversation, we can respect their opinions and help them to recognize their problem with God isn't intellectual, but rather it's purely emotional due to a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is and what he's really like. Second, you see, when we're armed with the knowledge of why the God in whom we have put our faith would allow us to experience pain, evil, and suffering, then this can be an enormous encouragement when we find ourselves in the middle of suffering, the suffering that God has called us to endure. When we can realize that we should cling to God all the more during those times because he is all loving and all powerful. We will see that we have good reason to trust our Heavenly Father, even in the midst of pain, evil, and suffering. You see, when we act on our knowledge of God and put our trust or our faith in Him, uh, this is what it's all about. You see, when we act on our knowledge of God and put our trust in Him, this is the epitome of faith. Now to my atheist friend who refuses to believe in God because of atrocities, moral atrocities such as the Holocaust, 9-11, or even personal experiences of the evil and suffering he may have gone through. Well, I would gently and respectfully walk him through this argument to show him that God did not and does not causally determine evil or force evil or, or cause evil himself. Instead, he created a world in which he knew evil would come to fruition by the choices of truly free creatures because he wanted humanity to have the real possibility of experiencing an authentic and loving relationship with him, with God. Now, that true love relationship would not be possible without genuine free will and the real possibility then of evil. Now, after helping my friend realize that his problem is not an intellectual one, but rather an emotional one, well, then I need to switch gears, so to speak, and, and just be there to comfort him and to put my arm around him and to tell him I'm there for him, that I'm praying for him. You know, at this point, my role of a philosophical theologian is over. I need to take off my philosopher's hat and, and put on my pastor hat. 
now that he realizes his problem is an emotional one, it's time for me to put on my pastor hat and, and just be a good listener and to be a true friend and to show him the truth and love of Jesus Christ. You see, what was meant for evil, God uses for good. Think about Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And consider Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And again, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 17 and 18 Paul talks about how affliction, how the suffering that we're going to prepares us for eternity. It prepares us for an eternal weight of glory. So it's worth it to go through pain, evil, and suffering now. It prepares us for an eternity free from pain, evil, and suffering. We'll appreciate it, you see. Because of this, although we hate suffering, and try to avoid it. I'll tell you, I try as hard as I can to avoid suffering. So although we hate suffering and try to avoid it when we find ourselves in it, you see, we can take the same attitude that Paul had. Let's look at what Paul said in Romans 5, 3 and 4. He said, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. (laughs) Wow. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Oh God, I just want to thank you that you had the guts to take your own medicine. God, you created the world, and you entered into it, and you experienced suffering like most of us will never know. And you did that so that we could come to know you for an eternity free from suffering. Jesus, thank you for what you've done. And I pray that, um, as Paul says in Philippians 4, 5, uh, he says to be reasonable, to let our reasonableness be known to everyone. Lord, I pray that we would be reasonable Christians, that we would uh, think logically according to your nature, And that through this, that leads us to your word, and we would uh, think biblically about everything. God, I, I pray that as we are reasonable thinkers, that we would grow and be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we would be utterly transformed by the way we think. God, I pray that we fall more in love with you every day for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.